All right, well, that's uh, 8.45. We'll go ahead and crank up since I think we have uh, an hour here together this morning. Um, well, happy, uh, what, 2021. We're here in the new year. We made it. Uh, hopefully you guys had a uh, yeah, decent holiday break. I don't know if anyone had any little pockets of rest or refreshment, but I pray that you got at least something. Um, how many of you guys were, were here like this past semester, last fall? Were you guys here last week at all? Not last week, sorry. Uh, the last foundations class that would have been a few weeks ago. You guys were awesome. Well, so it's good timing to be here this week because the last, the last foundations class, we actually finished uh, with uh, lesson 75, which is the final lesson in the foundations uh, course. So uh, this week we're actually starting over at the beginning of what we call our foundations classes uh, here at, um, at Delray. So essentially foundations is... You can think about it like a two-year, it's laid out to be a two-year kind of theological doctrinal training course that we offer here as a church, and uh, we do it out of what we believe and what we hope is obedience to uh, Scripture that we find in places like Titus 2.1 where it says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And the reason why Paul tells Timothy to, or excuse me, Paul tells Titus to do that comes from chapter 1 verse 10 of Titus, where he says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So there were these in the circumcision party who were teaching falsely in the churches in Crete. And so Paul tells Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine, right? Teach what the Bible says is true. Uh, another reason that we think it's important to have a, a course like the Foundations course is, uh, comes out of a place uh, in Hosea, Hosea chapter 4, Verse 6, where uh, God says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Those are weighty words to say that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We really want to think about this as life and death, to think about it the way that God thinks about it, right? And so you guys toss out some, uh, some thoughts, ideas to me of what you think the lack of knowledge is that God is referring to there in Hosea 4.6 when he says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What do you think that lack of knowledge is referring to? What's the knowledge there? Who God is. Who God is. Yeah, that's a good one. Absolutely. Any, any other lack of knowledge that that could be referring to, who God is, is, is a good one, a key one. Knowledge of the Word. Yeah, knowledge of the Word. Yeah, and so with that knowledge of the Word, it's, as Joey just said, it's a lack of who, lack of understanding who God is, a lack of understanding what He desires, a lack of understanding what it means for our life, a lack of understanding what it means to love our neighbor and respond to our circumstances well and to battle sin well. So it's a lack of knowledge, right? It's a lack of knowing God and knowing His Word and through that knowing ourselves and the world in which we live. And, and Hosea starts off that chapter, chapter 4, by saying, For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. Right, so, so there's all this languishing in the land. There's all these things that God just listed and gave, right? And what's the reason for it that he gives? Well, he says it's because there's no knowledge of me. There's no knowledge of God. And we're not just talking about academic knowledge, right? We're, okay, well, I'm lacking knowledge. Let me just go grab a bunch of uh, textbooks and do some academic study, though there's, there's a place for that. But God here has in mind personal, intimate, heart-changing knowledge of God heart-changing relating to God and, and actually delighting in who God is and what he says and what he promises so that there would be steadfast love in the land. And so that's why we do this. That's why we, we gather uh, on Sunday mornings to do a course like Foundation so that, Lord willing, our church would not be destroyed for a lack of knowledge of God. The hope, though, is that we'd rather know God and love God and relate to God and that from there, we would be able to love one another well, and there would be faithfulness to the word and to each other as we covenant together. All right, well, let me pray for us as we kick off uh, this first lesson, and then we'll 
we will dive into lesson one of our foundations course. Well, Lord Jesus, we do thank you for uh, this morning uh, when we get to gather together to hear from the Bible, from your word that you have given to us. Thank you that you, um, God the Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in such a way that we can know you and make you known. Thank you that you have lifted the veil off of our hearts so that we can see and understand and and be a part of the body of Christ to help each other along until you call us home or until you come back to gather your church, Father. We pray that you would help us this morning to grow in our knowledge of you, Father, a knowledge that leads to affections increasing, worship increasing, a desire to study so that we can have our lives changed and transformed by your word through your spirit as we look at your word together in the context of your community. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are willing to carve out this time on a Sunday morning uh, to hear your word taught. And so, God, we pray that you would bless this morning for us. Thank you for this new year, God. We pray that you would, as always, just surprise us with your grace throughout the year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so our topic for today to kick things off is knowing and living. Knowing and living, which again is our introduction to our foundations class as a whole. So this lesson is, again, it's about why we do this, why we do foundations, right? What's the value in knowing God in, in really studying his word to hear from him and relate to him rightly? And so the main idea we're, we're going to hope that we are able to draw out this morning is this. Scripture matters to human life because it is the word of God and nothing matters to human life more than the God who has spoken. So the main idea, again, Scripture matters to human life because it is the Word of God, and nothing matters to human life more than the God who has spoken. So it's, it's worth pausing and thinking for a moment. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that nothing matters more to your life than the God who has spoken through His Word? That food matters less than this, that drink matters less than this, that work and money and health and possessions and everybody liking you and performance and pleasures and games and hobbies and fill in the blank, that all of those things matter less than God, this God who has spoken and revealed himself to us. Do we really believe that? Because if we believe that, it changes things. It changes everything, right? If we really believe that nothing matters more than the God who has spoken, and that he's spoken to us through his word, then what are we going to spend our days doing if we really believe that? Well, Lord willing, we would spend our days hearing him speak, right? And thinking about all the people in, think about all the people in the world that if they invited you to come join them, to come have a conversation with them, to sit around the table with them, to fellowship with them, right? Whether that be a theologian, a celebrity, an athlete, a politician, a public figure, a world leader, right? Think about those people that you would do whatever you could to show up to that table to spend that time with them. You guys toss out some names of some of those people. Who are those people for you that you would travel halfway across the world to go spend some time with? What's that? Your wife. That's a good one. It's a good answer. It's a very good answer. Amen. Your wife. Yeah, anyone else? Jason Seville. Jason Seville. Jimmy, yeah. Yeah, he would travel halfway across the world to, to go see you. He did win. Well, he's, I don't realize, I don't think he knows what he's won, but he's, uh, he's won something. Jason Seville. Um, well, all that to say, right, so um, how much more so when it's God who's inviting us to the table, when it's God who's inviting us to speak with him and spend time with him. And so we should study and practice and enjoy the scriptures because they are, in fact, the revelation of God. They are light in the darkness, a divine compass for lost people, the roadmap from death to life, food and water for dying souls. They bear witness to Jesus Christ, who is the final revelation of God, as Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 tells us. Scripture leads us to Jesus, the very source, the only source of eternal life. And John 1, 4 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. I mean, how many of you have asked, would, if someone said, hey, do you want life? 
I mean, how many of us would say, uh, yes, please, I'll, I'll take life? Or if someone said, how about light? Yeah, yeah, I could use some light. I would love some light in my life. Well, Scripture says that in Him, in Christ, is the life. And He is the light of men. And so we're given a word, the Bible, that leads us to Christ, that reveals us to Him, or reveals Him to us. So point number one here, Scripture matters to life. Scripture matters to life. So when we read the teaching of Jesus Christ, we should find that if we just watch him in ministry with his disciples, just watch the way that he lived life on earth with the disciples, that it's very, very hard to separate the divine truths that he passed along from daily life, from human life. Right? If we spent just a day with Christ, we'd see that life is not neatly divided into these moments of doctrinal study over here and then practical living over here. Right? It's both all the time. Knowledge of God and the way that we live. They, they, go, they should go hand in hand. They do go hand in hand. And so it's important to say this early on so that we don't separate these in our mind. That, that again, we have over here the academic study of God and then there's life. Studying doctrine and then the practical, right? Because as we'll see here in a little bit, the doctrines of God are actually extremely practical. Very practical. And it, it actually doesn't take much thought to see how practical they are if we slow down to think about them. So turn with me here to uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to take a look at the Lord's Prayer in verses 9 through 13 of Matthew chapter 6. This is a great example here, right? This is Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. Jesus modeled it for them. And, and we can learn a ton just from studying how Christ prayed, and also what he prayed, right? The content of his prayers were heavenly-minded and also sensitive to life below. You're going to see both of those things in this one prayer. The priorities of his prayers were perfectly ordered, right? They showed the right arrangement of God-centered thoughts and life on earth. All right, so someone read for us the Lord's Prayer there in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Yeah, and so leading into this, I mean, what a great question for the disciples to ask, right? Lord, teach us how to pray. I mean, even that says something about the way we ought to think about life and approach God. I mean, how many of us actually will say, Lord, I, I'm struggling to pray right now. Can you just, just teach me how to pray? Show me how to pray to you rightly. Teach me how to talk to you. And notice, too, Jesus doesn't turn to his disciples and say, well, that's a dumb question. You're asking me how to pray. That's just so basic. You should know that already. But instead he says, okay, well, I will teach you how to pray. Pray like this. But as he's praying like this, he's not saying, okay, now pray these same rote words over and over again every day of your, of your life. But rather he is revealing something about who God is, who we are, and how we relate to him through his prayer. All right, so let's just take that. That first statement, and really the first part of that first statement, right? Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. What are some truths that, that, that you guys can see and get from that one statement, our Father in heaven? We have a personal parental relationship with Him. God's not abstract, not relational. Or Father makes that. Yeah, because he, says, because he says that Father, right? There is a Father in heaven. Yeah, that, that's really good. And so there's a God who exists. And so what are some implications then for life, if that's true? If there is a Father in heaven, what are some implications then for our daily life? We, we, can, we can relate to him, right? 
our Father in heaven. And even the fact that this God exists, it, it helps us in a good way to humble us to know that, that we're not the center of the world, right? There's a God who's at the center of the world. And so, and also, like you mentioned, Joey, we relate to God all the time. We can't not live life before the face of God. <laughs> we can't not live life before his face. We do it all the time. And so that, that makes us want to ask, okay, well, then, then who is he exactly and, and how should I relate to him? Uh, another uh, truth that you can get from this is just from this one statement, our Father in heaven, is that, and you hinted at this, Joey, that God is the Father. And so an implication for life there that we are recipients of his grace and, and we get to relate to him as a father, right? And so that reality should reorient everything of how we think and feel and act. I mean, we're, we're not an orphan. We're, we're his children. We are his child. And do children relate differently than orphans to, to the adults in their lives, to the, to the people in their lives? Very much so. Very much so. And so God is the Father. Another truth from this, uh, that he is our Father in heaven. So Father in heaven. So another implication is that he is exalted. We don't want to forget that. Yes, he is close and he is intimate with us and he is with us daily. But also that he is above us, right? He is otherworldly. He created this world, but he is above this world. And so we approach him with that humility. Because he's the God of heaven and we are his creation. And so you can see just from this one truth, right? Our Father who is in heaven, you can see how truth after truth and implication after implication after implication can come from one phrase of the whole Bible. And we could spend hours, literally hours, just thinking about this one truth being expressed and then patterning our lives based off this one truth of our Father in heaven. We can do that over and over again. Let's try to do the same thing here with hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. What's a, what's a truth that we can get from that? When he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. What do you guys think? A truth from hallowed be your name. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. Worship, magnify, glorify. Yeah, hallowed is, is, you know, Lord, be set apart as holy. In a sense, be who you are. We want to see your name hallowed. Um, and so, yeah, so that is, I think, a great truth, right? God is holy. And so we should regard him as holy. And so Jesus is praying this, Lord. May your name, Lord, be regarded as holy in the whole world. Well, why? Because that's who you are. And so that then becomes a desire for us, a prayer for us, that God would be holy in our lives. And so from there, what's an implication for us if God is, in fact, holy? What's an implication for our daily life? Yeah. That we need to be holy as well, right? Because we, Lord willing, would desire to be like God. He created us to be in his image so that we would be holy as well. And, and so with the hallowed be your name, right, that, that should also be a central truth in our life that begins to reorient everything that we think and feel and do, that, that God's name being hallowed means way more to us than our own personal reputations, that, that we lose more sleep over God's name being defamed than, than our own names being defamed. So hallowed be your name. Uh, let's take a couple more here. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are some truths we can get from that statement? God has desires. What's that? That God has desires, yeah, from uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. That God actually has desires. He has a will. And so an implication for our daily life is, okay, Lord, what exactly is that? <laughs> what is your will? Why should that be important to me? How does that impact my daily life? Yeah, that's a great observation. And also even the fact that there is a heaven and an earth. 
uh, that, that naturalism can't be true because the, the seen world is not all that there is. Those things exist. There's heaven and there's earth. And so in light of that, God has a will. And it's a will that we want to pray would be done here, that there would be a kingdom coming here on earth that we pray for. And so that creates, we hope, a godly discontentment that we should feel in this life because of God's promises for the future. It's important to say godly discontentment there, not just discontentment in general. That's good. All right, so um, give us this day our daily bread. How about that one? Give us this day our daily bread. A, A truth from that is God is the provider for daily life. Again, now we're kind of moving from our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we're now coming down to, this is Jesus praying. He cares about daily life. Give us this day our daily bread, right? So we depend upon God for the most basic physical provision, which means two things, that we should be both dependent on God and also thankful to God. Dependent on God and thankful to God for every good thing, every good thing we receive here on this earth. In, in Romans 1, uh, when, when Paul talks about what went wrong with humanity, he actually says three times that there is a refusal by humanity to give thanks to God. Three times when he's talking in Romans 1, he says that humanity would not give thanks to God. There's this refusal to be grateful. And so how serious is a lack of thanksgiving in our lives? I mean, Paul in Romans 1 says it's at the heart of false worship, right? It's at the heart of discontentment towards God. At the heart of apostasy is a refusal to give thanks to God. And so we pray, God, uh, yeah, we pray, give us this day our daily bread, God, because there's a recognition where it comes from. And then there's a thankfulness in the fact that he actually provides those things. All right, two more here. How about, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Or forgive us our trespasses as we also have forgiven those who trespass against us, right? What's a truth that we can get from that? There you go. God forgives us, so we should forgive others. And and so we are debtors in need of forgiveness. And also, we are sinned against. Those are two realities that oftentimes in our minds, one will be more inflated than the other. We'll get too caught up in our own sin, or we'll get too caught up in the sins of others. But if we pray, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, that that should help us to see that grace, the implication for our daily life, that grace is central to relating. It's central to relating to God because we need forgiveness, and it's central in relating to one another because we need grace in our relationships with each other. And so that truth begins to create in us humility and, and repentance and, and cries for mercy, right? And so we're physical beings. Give us a day of daily bread, and we are spiritual beings, right? Spiritual beings. Forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven those who sin against us, right? We have outer person needs for bread, and we have inner person needs for, for bread. Outer person needs for water, and then also inner person needs for spiritual water. And so Jesus, again, he's sensitive to what doctrine looks like on the street level, right? What are these theological truths for daily lives? And the last one here, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What's a truth there that we can pull out of that? Yes, we are weak and tentable, right? Evil exists. Oh, and by the way, we are drawn to evil. (laughs) I mean, that's why we have to pray, don't lead us there, because we're drawn to it. And so an implication for, for daily life, again, is that humility, that dependence upon God, that he would both momentarily deliver us from temptation and evil in this life and then also ultimately deliver us on that final day because of Christ's sacrifice for us. And so, again, beneath the content of just one of Jesus's prayers, one little passage in one little chapter in the whole Bible. I mean, how much time could we spend just mining truth and then patterning life after this? Imagining doing this with the whole Bible, right? How long would that take? It would take a whole lifetime to do that. 
And so we can even go back through this prayer and do what we just did and find about, you know, 20 other new things. And so you can see why God says in Hosea that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. He's saying they don't know me. They don't listen to my word and they don't take this seriously. And so that's why our next point here, that the posture of heart matters. Posture of heart matters. So God looks to the humble, not the proud. God gives the grace to tremble at his word and grace to those who tremble at his word. Can someone read for me there? Do you guys have that in your notes, Isaiah 66 too? Someone read for me, Isaiah 66 verse 2. Yeah, so, so who is the one whom God will look? What are some of the things that God says about the one whom he will look? Reverence for the word. Yeah. Yeah, reverence for the word trembles at his word. So does the posture of our heart matter when we come to God, when we come to his word? It, it has huge implications, right? I mean, think about the, the Pharisees. I mean, did the Pharisees study scripture a lot? Did the Sadducees study scripture a lot, right? They were the the scribes. I mean, what were they scribing all day? What were they they scribbling down all day? The Bible, and unfortunately a bunch of other added traditions, but still they had a ton of exposure to God's word, and yet they were unbelieving because they did not tremble at God's word. They didn't have eyes to see and a heart to believe from the Holy Spirit that these are the words from God, right? And so just sitting down and reading it, it just, it didn't do a whole lot for them. Because something was off there, right? It, it, did, it made them more legalistic and more self-righteous and, and made them think there's this false sense of security. Hey, we're okay because I know a lot of scripture. But their posture of heart was far different than that of the posture of heart we see in Isaiah 66, verse 2. And so what we need is a heart given by the Holy Spirit to read and receive the word of God with humility, with contrition, with with, with trembling, really. The weight of what we're receiving is something we need God to, to work in. Jesus talks about this in, in Matthew 11, uh, 25 and, and 26, right? So here Jesus is praying, and we have a lot to learn just from his prayers. He says this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And so what, what, when he says that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, what are the these things do you think that he's referring to there? You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. The gospel. Yeah, the precious truths of God, right, delivered through the Holy Scripture. And those truths will not surrender themselves to the wise of this world. They won't. Only those who have the posture of heart that is like a child, right? And so what do you think Jesus meant by the wise of the world? Think about that. When Jesus talks about uh, hidden these things from the wise of the world, what did Jesus mean by the wise? Who does he have in mind there? Who are the wise? What's that? Yeah, yeah, right. The, the, the people who look like to the world, they're, they're, they're wise, right? They're doing a lot for God. They're, um, they're learned, they're the educated, they're the people who are sharp, who are accomplished, who are high achievers, right? The wise of the world, that's literally meaningless, <laughs> meaningless when it comes to understanding and knowing God because the posture of the heart is, is a lot more important, right? It's, it's those, the wise of the world that God, for whatever reason, chose not to know in this prayer, right? But instead, it's the little children that he reveals himself to, right? There are people who will be around the word and read it, but just not get it. Uh, you think of um, the immoral woman at, uh, weeping at Jesus' feet and at the home of Simon the leper, right? Or excuse me, Simon the Pharisee. And so that woman is the one who gets it. And yet Simon the Pharisee and everybody else in the house doesn't get it. It's, it's those people who God reveals himself to 
not to the wise of the world. All right, so the next point here, hunger and thirst for God matters. Hunger and thirst for God matters. So Jesus called himself a, a couple of things. One, he called himself the bread of life in John six thirty five, And he also referred to the Holy Spirit as rivers of living water in John seven thirty eight and 39. And so when God grants us genuine faith in Christ, we receive the bread of life and from our hearts will flow rivers of living water. And yet our hunger and thirsting shouldn't stop there. It shouldn't stop the first time that we receive it, right? Because if we drink of that water, we'll never thirst again, but that's because we'll continue wanting to come back to it. And it's always available. It's always there for us. And the same way with the bread of life. Once we've had the bread of life, we just want more of the bread of life. I mean, think of how often uh, Jesus would, would heal someone of leprosy or of demon possession, right? And what did they immediately want to do after he healed them, right? Did they just want to run away and leave? No, right? Think about the garrison demoniac, right? What did he want to do? He wanted to stay with Jesus because he's like, this is the bread of life. This is where I can have water that can quench my thirst. And he wants to go with Jesus, but Jesus has to tell him, no, go tell everyone of the great things that God has done for you. And you'll see that time and time again, that those who Jesus heals, those who he frees, want more and more of Christ. And so for us, our posture of heart should be that those that he has freed from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. We want to come back to him over and over again, and it's through the word that we do that primarily. I mean, think about if we were legally blind and someone gives you glasses that corrects that vision. Think about how much you would think, wow, I, I need these glasses all the time. Now imagine losing those glasses. <laughs> what would you do to find those glasses if you lost them? And so that's how we should imagine going a day, a week, a month without God's word, right? These lenses that God has given us to understand him, ourselves, and the world around us. The posture of our heart matters. So Ezra, think about how Ezra approached God in life with an understanding of God's word. So in Ezra 7.10, it says this, For Ezra had his heart, excuse me, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. It comes from Ezra 7.10. And think about it for a moment. What did God end up using Ezra to do? He used Ezra to take this decimated nation, right, with this decimated spiritual system, this temple in rubble, and through him begin to rebuild not just the physical structures in the nation, but the spiritual life of the nation. And do you think Ezra woke up one day and said, hey, I, I'd love to rebuild the spiritual life of this nation, so here we go. Let's, let's, let's start getting after it. No, it, it, Scripture tells us that he set his heart first, primarily to study the law of the Lord and to try and do what it says and to teach it a little bit. That's it. That's where, his, that's where the posture of his heart began. And then God from there says, okay, Ezra, now I'll do these things through you, right? And so having spiritual goals, those are good desires. Those are going to be good things, right? Church planning, uh, winning over the city or the nation, right? These are good desires, but don't miss what's even more important, what's even more, in base, even more basic than those good things that we want to do for the Lord. Hunger and thirsting for God's word, committing to study God's word, to do it, to teach it, and then may the Lord accomplish what he will through us. Because now we're men and women who are ready to be used by the Lord in any way that he would see fit. There's a great quote here from us in Claire Ferguson from a book, The Christian Life. It's a great book. Uh, not too long of a read, uh, highly recommend it, but uh, he says this, from the greatest theologians, martyrs, and intellectually gifted preachers to those of lowliest gifts but spiritual power, all, perhaps without exception, have been students of the doctrines of the Bible, and therein lie one of the secrets of their usefulness. And so he talks about being a student of God, a student of God's word, right, committed to a life that prays, Lord, help me keep your word. Sinclair Ferguson says that's the secret of these men and women's usefulness to the Lord over and over again that we see throughout church history, right? That's who God is going to use. Which leads us to uh, point C here. Carefulness in our thoughts about God and his word. Carefulness in our thoughts about God and his word. 
So when you think about, uh, yeah, think about eating and drinking a meal, right? Especially if you come to the table really, really, really hungry, right? And it's tempting just to scarf the whole thing down. And then if we're going to rush, just kind of sh- sort of jump up and then rush out to the door and, and begin our day without giving a second thought about what it is that we just ate. And really think about it. We have other things that we're trying to move on to. This bite of food is just trying to, you know, help my hunger so I can get on to the next thing. Now, granted, there's going to be moments of that with the Word of God. There's going to be moments of, of cramming, if you will, and, and moments for a quick snack. We don't want to become legalistic in how we think about this. But we want to be careful that we don't begin to approach the Bible as a whole that way. It's something I just need to do so I can move on to the next thing. I want to be careful that, that our regular diet doesn't become snacks about the Bible. We want to be able to think carefully about what it is that we just read, who it is that we just read about. I want to read it slowly and thoughtfully and prayerfully, and then actually, again, thinking about what we're, we're reading. And now, I realize that in this day and age, that's getting harder and harder to do, I think especially in an area like Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C. I mean, the idea of going slowly it's hard, you know, reading something and, and thinking about it. But taking our time in God's word will then help us to take more time in life. To think about the daily lives that God has given us. How should we respond or not respond to this person? How should I write or not write this email? How should I send or not send this tweet? If we're able to slow down and spend time with God in his word, it will help us then to think about the day, as, the day ahead as we walk out the door or, in these days, I guess, just go walk to sit in front of the computer for another Zoom call. But either way, like slowing down in God's Word will help us slow down in life. And again, if you're the enemy, if you're Satan and sin, and you know that's true, what are you going to do? Are you going to do everything you can to try to speed up your life? To try to make sure that you either don't get snacks at all or all you get is snacks. And so don't forget about the spiritual warfare component here. Satan knows these things that we're talking about. He knows them well. And so that's why teaching and obeying sound doctrine can help us and is so important to the life of the church, as we saw in Titus 1 and 2. And so think about what we just did in in Matthew 6, right? All we did was just we we read it, and then we asked, what's the truth here? And now what's an implication for daily life? Just those two questions alone can draw out so much richness and truth for us as we go through our daily lives. And so... What is doctrine exactly? How can we define doctrine? There's a number of ways that you can define it. One way is that doctrine is biblical teaching on theological truths. Or in other words, doctrine is truth that the Bible teaches. At the end of the day, that's all it is. It's just truth that the Bible teaches. It helps us think rightly about God and about everything that that truly matters. Uh, Bobby uh, Bobby Jameson, one of the pastors over at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, gives a helpful definition of doctrine. He says, sound doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. Remember that this, uh, the exercise of doctrine, it's not um, purely academic and empty when it comes to daily life, right? It's vital to life. It should be vital to life. If we can't see how a doctrine connects to daily life, Ask another brother or sister for help because that's not how God laid out his word. And there's kind of two ways to, to see how um, doctrine over the years has been studied. Uh, one is through systematic theology, what's called systematic theology. The other one is through what's called biblical theology. So systematic and biblical theology. So systematic theology is it's the discipline of studying and organizing and presenting sound doctrines within broad theological Categories. So, for example, Christology, right, the study of Christ, soteriology, the study of salvation, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. And the hope is that you can see and develop this cohesive system of understanding the doctrines of the Bible. And, and the hope is that they would be presented in proper relationships to one another. And so systematic theology looks at the doctrines from a cross-section, if you will, of the Bible. It looks at all of the Bible and says, what does the whole Bible say about salvation? What does the whole Bible say about the Holy Spirit or the church. So biblical theology, on the other hand, is the discipline of studying and organizing the progressive revelation of God. So as you're reading from Genesis to Revelation, we're learning more and more about God. So biblical theology is the discipline of studying and organizing the progressive revelation of God and his redemptive work in the Bible so that doctrines are presented in proper relationship to their historical setting, right? 
And so when we talk about, you know, how did Old Testament believers understand the, the Holy Spirit versus New Testament believers, right? You're looking at how that is, for example, the study of the Holy Spirit, doctrine of the Holy Spirit was revealed throughout the progressive revelation of the Bible. A helpful way I've heard this put is to think about the Lord of the Rings story. Is everyone familiar with, with Lord of the Rings? I'm finally trying to start actually read this thing. I feel like everyone around me has read it. I barely got through the movie, so I'm trying to be a little more cultured, a little more educated. It, it's a lot of work for me to be either of those things. So, um, so think about if someone took the Lord of the Rings and there was an encyclopedia for the Lord of the Rings, right? And there was a section in there that talked about elves and dwarves and hobbits. You can open up that encyclopedia and learn a ton about, here's everything that's taught about hobbits in the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. You can think about that as systematic theology. Whereas biblical theology would be just really, in many ways, just studying the story of the Lord of the Rings itself. And as you're reading from start to finish, you're learning more and more about the relationship between dwarves and elves and hobbits and humans. And so you're reading that in a way where that's kind of more biblical theology, just kind of reading the book itself. But then you can see we're going to the encyclopedia of the Lord of the Rings. As you then go back and read the story itself, will add this depth and richness to what you're reading. So that's one way to think about biblical theology and systematic theology and why those two things are very, very important, right? Because thinking carefully about scripture forces us to think about doctrine and thinking about doctrine should force us to think carefully about Scripture. They should work together, kind of hand in hand. We're trying to understand the Bible, the storyline of the Bible, the God of the Bible. And if all these things are not pushing us towards that, well, then something's gone off with our study of theology and, and doctrine. Yes, Joey. Yeah, so how can we be careful when reading the Bible to make sure that we're understanding it rightly and applying it in our lives rightly? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think, you know, obviously one, there's a number of ways. One is obviously the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. You know, Lord willing, the Holy Spirit would bring conviction in our life uh, if, uh, if doctrine is off or if the way we're applying it in our life is off. So I think there's the internal witness of the Spirit. I think number two, trying to make sure we're understanding the whole counsel of God. Right? Remember, this, these, these letters, these books of the Bible were written at one time. We can't just take a verse and say, okay, I'm going to try to now live my life off of this one verse without trying to understand what's happening around it. So I would say making sure that we're reading the whole counsel of God is another way. And then, too, I also think of you know, Colossians 3 where we need each other. Right? We wanted to uh, you know, admonish one another, encourage one another in the Word. And uh, so you need the community of Christ. There is... You cannot understand Scripture rightly, I don't think, and see the Christian life as, as the Christian community being necessary for sanctification and for understanding and knowing rightly whether or not I am understanding truth rightly and applying it to my life rightly. Um, so there's both the personal responsibility we have, right, to kind of pray with a posture of humility, Holy Spirit, please help me to make sure I'm understanding this rightly. Um, and then as we study doctrine, that's going to help us to understand this word that's in front of us. But then we also have a corporate responsibility to one another to not just make sure that others are speaking into our lives and that we're opening ourselves up to them, but that they're doing the same. And so I think those two things are, I just don't know how we could understand the Bible rightly or apply it rightly without those two things. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I think those two things are, are key. Nathan, yeah. Yeah. Are you saying like if you're a member of that church? Yeah. Or like if you're having a conversation with a church leadership yeah. on how they have erred doctrinally. Yeah. They're saying the Spirit has led us to this direction. Yeah. So if, if I'm so if I'm talking to the church leadership of the PCUSA. Yeah, as an example. That's a great question. And let's say that, hey, they're saying, hey, the Holy Spirit is leading us kind of doctrinally in this way. Yeah, well, I think again the responsibility is still the same as far as 
again, the Colossians 3 and, and Ephesians. I mean, it's showing up and saying, okay, well, show me from Scripture, right? One of, the, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring to mind the things that Christ taught, the things that the Bible teaches. And so I think you lovingly want to ask him, well, yeah, can you show me from Scripture where, where it seems as though the Holy Spirit is guiding you based on these truths? Because I look at these truths, and here's some truths for you guys to consider, for you all to consider as you make this decision. And I think you just lovingly point that out to say, here's why there's, I think there's disagreement. Here's the truths of the Bible that, that I think you should consider that I think is counter to the decisions you're making. Um, and then that's your corporate responsibility to them. But then there's that personal responsibility on them at the end of the day where they'll have to give an account before the Lord. And you have to pray, Holy Spirit, if, if I'm right in understanding this and they are wrong, would you please, if they are your children, would you please convict them of error, convict them of this direction that they're taking? Um, so I think there's a way to lovingly share that with them and pray for them. So you don't want to pull back from it. But then there's also there's a level at which your responsibility goes, you know, versus if it's somebody in your church that you're covenanted together with. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, Cameron. Amen. Yeah, test the spirit, yeah, by the proclamation of, because that's where we need. It's that understanding truth and understanding its implications for daily lives and knowing that the heart is deceitful above all. <laughs> like, the last thing you want to do is trust your heart, <laughs> right? Like, that's, that's literally the last thing you want to do. Follow your heart? I mean, that could lead you straight to hell, literally. Now, that said, as we, if we truly are redeemed and regenerated in Christ, we have been given new hearts, right? We are a new creation. Right? The old man has passed away, the new has come. And so our, over time, our impulses, our intuitions will grow. The more that we spend time in this word, the more that we spend time in the community of Christ, the more that we can begin to say, hey, I think this is a godly intuition. I think this is right. And, and here's where, just to give a practical example, when somebody says, you know, if they have some responsibilities in front of them, let's say they're living in, I don't know, they're living in Kansas, and they say, you know what, the Lord has called me to move to Texas. And so I'm moving you know, next week. And the people around them are like, hey, this is actually an unwise decision. They go, hey, God's told me, the Holy Spirit's told me. What's really happening there is that they are avoiding taking responsibility for a decision that they're about to make. It is, it is a way of trying to push off responsibility to say, listen, the Holy Spirit does convict us. And we talk to each other and say, hey, Joey, you know, I just, I really feel like the Lord is pressing into my heart. I need to move to Texas next week. And I've been spending time in his word, and I think this is where that's coming from. So I am choosing to, I am deciding to move to Texas. What are your thoughts on that? Can you talk to me about that? Help me make sure I'm understanding this rightly. Those are worlds apart, Right. But again, how do you know how the Holy Spirit works? Well, you have to read and study doctrine. You have to read and study scripture in the Bible. The Holy Spirit so often speaks in surround sound. And so that's more of a worldly way of understanding how the Spirit works than it is a true biblical understanding that how we need the body of Christ to help us in those moments. Because again, Holy Spirit will never contradict doctrine. Holy Spirit will never contradict humility, ever. And so I think we really do need to take responsibility because we could be wrong. I think we always have to understand that we could be wrong. And, and God, we want him to use the body of Christ around us and, and the people around us, right? So it's a good question. Yeah, Jason. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Church, yeah. That sometimes we, we, we disconnect ourselves from theological streams in an That's unhealthy good. way. So I think we, we help. So even DC USA, when, if you look at directions and doctrinal decisions that groups are making today and, and sit down and say, show me scripture, but also show me how any Christians in the history of Christianity have ever interpreted it this way. Like yeah. And so there's a there's historical theology as well that comes along systematic biblical theology that in our effort to avoid kind of the, the 
Yeah. Which puts us in a very dangerous place as well. So. That's really good. So even, and that's a great point. So even adding to that list, systematic theology, biblical theology, historical theology is key as well. Looking at church history to see over the years, how is the church, as we understand the, you know, kind of the, the Orthodox church in, in, you know, understanding the gospel the way we do, how have they interpreted things? And if we're about to do something different, Again, we should have some humility there. That's really good. I like that. Yeah, church history could be very, 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 very helpful and should be, I think, a part of our study of doctrine as well. Uh, the church has been around for thousands of years, so we, we have a few things to learn. <laughs> That's really good. All right, how are we doing? I think we're okay on time. All right, 936. All right, so, yeah, a couple more points here. Um, so, again, think for, uh, let's take, for example, the doctrine of justification, just to take one doctrine, right? This idea of answering the question, how can unholy sinners become rightly related to a holy, sinless God? Can someone read for me there Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24? All right, so what, what are, yeah, what's a truth that we learn from just these two verses on how it is that a sinner becomes justified by a holy, sinless God? Yeah. It's a gift. That's right. It's a gift. And it's a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And so think about some of the questions that should come to mind then. Right? If, if these were the only two verses that you've ever read in the Bible, and you're reading this, and you're seeing that it's a gift, right? By His grace, it's a gift. Think about some of the questions that, that should come to mind. Questions like, okay, well, what exactly is grace? What, how exactly do I receive this gift that's being talked about in this passage? What is redemption, right? Who is Christ? Why, why would I, of all people, get it? How can I receive this gift? And so that great truth about justification that emerges from this passage should lead us to all kinds of other questions. And we may find ourselves in a place like Galatians 3.11 as we try to follow that thread. Galatians 3.11 says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Why? For the righteous shall live by faith. And so what's the contrast of faith that Paul is giving here in Galatians 3.11? How are we not justified? What's that? The law. That's right. He says that uh, no one is justified before God by the law, but rather, in contrast, the righteous shall live by faith. And so you can see how if we take the doctrine of justification and look at just one passage, it begins to lead us to other passages in Scripture. And then all those pieces begin to come together to teach us this life-giving central truth of justification as found in the Bible. And so that's true for every other doctrine as well. And so as we read these passages, we want to say, okay, Lord, help me understand this. Lord, what questions come to mind that I don't understand about this passage or this, this idea, this doctrine, this word that's being spoken of in this passage? And that should lead us to, to study the scripture more and more so that we can learn about what does genuine faith mean? What, what is the law that's being referred to here in Galatians 11, 3.11? And so posture of heart matters. We talked about that. It's essential. Hunger and thirst matters. And then being careful about how we think about God in his word matters, which includes, again, that systematic, biblical, historical theology. And at the end of the day, just reading the Bible and becoming familiar with the Bible. There's just there's no substitute for that. All right. Any thoughts or questions before we wrap up with this last section here? Very good. All right, so then this, this last point here. The doctrine of Scripture are practical, right? So we never, ever want to place biblical doctrine over and against practical life as if they're in competition with one another. That should literally never happen. We should never feel that. If we can't say, if we're talking about a doctrine and we can't say, okay, well, how does that apply to my daily life? If we don't know the answer to that, that something's missed. Something's off. And we never, ever want that to happen because that's not how they're set up to be, right? And so living flows from knowing and believing, right? So consider a question from the field of physics. Think about it for a moment. What if you did not believe in the doctrine of gravity? How would that affect your life? Give me some examples of if you're somebody who does not believe gravity exists, 
How would that affect your daily life? What are some things you would do if you didn't think gravity existed? Trying to fly everywhere. That's what I'd be doing. Jumping off buildings. Or if it's too high, a building, because that would be the end of that. So that's, it, it impacts your daily life, right? What you believe impacts your daily life. And so think about even uh, now something much more weighty like union with Christ. Union with Christ, right? One of the weightier truths of Scripture, right? How we understand union with Christ. So Paul, in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, uh, you can just kind of make a note on that, that passage of Scripture. The best way, I think, to summarize Romans 6, 1 through 14 is the phrase union with Christ. And so Paul's going to say towards the end of that passage, he's going to say, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Right? So in other words, since you've been baptized with Christ, since you've been raised with Christ in his resurrection, therefore don't let sin reign in your mortal body. I mean, are there many things more significant and practical for daily life than that? Not letting sin reign in your mortal body. And so Paul is going to draw out the importance of union with Christ when it, when it comes to this. Paul's saying if you don't want sin to reign in your mortal body, you have to understand this doctrine. If you find yourself stuck in a battle for, with sin or you find other people stuck in their battle with sin, begin to study together Romans 6, 1 through 14 and this idea of union with Christ. Because that then is going to help us know that this feeling of sin, this fake feeling of sin having mastery is not true. It's not true. If scripture is true, then it's Christ that has mastery, not sin. And that is going to impact and affect the way that we battle daily lives. And, and think about it. Why do you think it is that God would let us feel like sin has mastery over us? What do you guys think? Why do you think God lets us feel like at times, even though it's not true, that sin has mastery over us? Makes us need him more. Yes. It makes us humble, independent. I really think that if there was not... Uh, temptations that we know that we just we need help battling that we may just not feel a strong need for God and for the people of God I, I think that's one of the many things God does by letting us feel like sin has mastery over us right I mean think about Genesis 3 right God says don't eat this or you'll die and Satan says uh, you, you you're not gonna die and so God says you're a new creation and, and that sin doesn't have mastery over you. You've been baptized with him, raised with him. You have new life in him. And Satan says, uh, no, you actually haven't been made new. You haven't been set free. You're actually pretty powerless in this battle against sin, which then tempts us to do what? It tempts us then to say, well, what's the point? Might as well give in. Might as well give in. And so, again, you can see how this doctrine of union with Christ has such an implication for our lives. And that's true with every other doctrine as well. Wrap up here with this last passage that the end of our instruction is love. If you take away nothing else from this time, take this away. That the end of our instruction is love. Listen to how Paul said it to Timothy. Because the hope is that doctrine would produce love. Love for God and one another. If it doesn't, again, our doctrines are off somewhere. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Right? So he's going to leave Timothy there to get, it, to get on a bunch of these false teachers for teaching falsely to the people because of how dangerous that is. And he wants to make sure that Timothy teaches rightly and refutes false teaching. He says, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is this, love that issues from what? From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so in other words, a sincere faith with a good conscience and a pure heart when receiving doctrine and good truth from scripture produces what? Should produce what? It should produce love, right? That's how we really know it's soaking in. That's how we really know it's soaking into our lives and the lives of others is that love is being produced. Right? Greater love for God and greater love for his people. And so it doesn't get much more practical than that. And, and we pray, I pray, that 
as you guys go through these foundations lessons, these 75 lessons that we laid out, the hope is the same hope and the same aim that we see here in 1 Timothy 1, that, that we would be a church marked by love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. All right, well, let me pray for us and uh, wrap up our time. Lord Jesus, I do thank you, God, that you have shown your love to us in such a way that now is able to produce love through us. But God, this love is a love that is informed by your word. It's informed by the Holy Spirit. Lord, it's, it's a word that is shaped in uh, hope and a love that is shaped and formed by the community that we have around us. And as our brother Jason reminded us, that we could just see throughout the history of the church where that's gone off and where that's gone right. And Lord, so often we can see that it's gone off by the fruits that come from it. And so, God, I pray for us as we go out this morning, God, would you make us men and women who genuinely want to know you through your word, that we would study your word, that we would thirst for it and hunger for it, believing that it is essential for our daily lives, that we would not be destroyed for lack of knowledge, God, that we wouldn't listen to the lies of the enemy, the lies of our flesh that say, you're not a new creation, you're not free, you are not able to battle this sin. God, help us to fight those lies with truth. Help us to bring to light things that are holding us in darkness so that the Holy Spirit can do the work that he does through your word. We love you, Father, and we are grateful again for your presence with us today. Amen.